it was competitive. There's no doubt about it. We all wanted to be the band to break out of Orange County. They chose this band to be the next favorite that they had. It's got the chorus, it's got the fast stuff, it's got the heavy stuff. Zach is just like, I'm gonna force feed it, and then, you know, when you come to, you'll be appreciative of it, uh, which we absolutely were. That's a fucking legendary riff. everybody and welcome to tracks the official avenge sevenfold podcast where we take you on a journey through the band's back catalog with the band themselves one song at a time it is my honor to be here with you my name is bees and today we are going to be concentrating on the song that started it all that's right it is unholy confessions time on tracks and i cannot wait to get started so let's get this intro popping pretty quickly Before we tell the story of Unholy Confessions, make sure you subscribe to the show or the YouTube channel if you're checking us out there because we already told the story of songs like Welcome to the Family and Roman Sky, Not Ready to Die, Trashed and Scattered was great. Also, make sure you're in the Death Bats Club Discord if you're a bat holder because every month someone wins the one-of-one artwork for the song that we are covering on this show as an NFT. And I think the Unholy Confessions NFT is the best looking one so far. So make sure you're in there and up to date with all things Sevenfold in the Death Bats Club Discord. Strap in, because we are about to give it to you hard. (laughs) Chill out, mate. We're about to give you the uncensored, untamed and uncaged story of one of the most undeniable metal songs of the 21st century. This is Tracks, and this is the true story of Unholy Confessions. Man, this is feels like forever ago, but I mean, I kind of still remember like it's yesterday. You know, we were coming up in the metal and um, kind of goth punk rock scene, and we were always surrounded by all these hardcore bands that started in you know incorporating metal bands like um, Shadows Fall and Bleeding Through and God Forbid, and we were listening to tons of that stuff and listening to tons of bands like AFI and you know, kind of like during their goth period. And, and we were just getting on the road in our van and, and playing with all these bands. And I wanted to uh, just come up with this thrash riff, you know, and I would play it. And I was like, this is fucking awesome. I really, you know, I think this is really cool. Like, how do I get this made into a song? And 
So what I did is every day when we would be opening for these other bands, we'd be sound checking and I just played this riff, you know, play it over and over again. It was kind of like my sound check riff, hoping that someone would catch on. He had that riff previously and we all liked it. He played, you know, it's one of those riffs that like the guitar player plays it all day. Like, and like, Hey guys, get this in a song. Hey, anyone like this, you know, sort of thing. Like, no, but that was a good one. Um, and it was very much, um, his interpretation of like at the gates, right? Like that one, two, I remember we went and we were all going to go in separate rooms for 30 minutes and write something. And I came back with the chorus, you know, um, it was just chords. We had no clue that the at the gates riff was going to go with it. And then I remember something that we learned very early on and something we learned from Pantera was that simplicity is key when it comes to breakdowns. And we really were making a correlation between like hip hop beats and what Pantera was doing, um, especially on Far Beyond Driven and stuff, just like just very like simple. And so we, and from then on, we've always called them dumb, dumb riffs and we've always incorporated them, whether it's, you know, critical acclaim or, you know, eternal rest. They're just total Southern dumb, dumb, but, but they're actually hard to kind of pull off because they can become incredibly cheesy if they're not, if they don't kind of hit in the right spots. And Unholy Confessions was our first like foray into dun, dun, we just ended up simplifying it all and just back and forth from the at the gates to Pantera, at the gates to Pantera, to chorus, to, to, to Iron Maiden. And so it just became like, it was just a, a, it was a complete smorgasbord of our influences all in one thing. And it was, you know, and it was us trying to be Pantera on us not pulling it off. We didn't have the tones or the ability to do it, but it became its own thing because we just, you know, we were trying to be our idols in a way, but doing it in a weird way. And that that's kind of unholy confessions. It really was just this thing that was written all over the country and had all over, all over the map. And it turned out the way it did. Zach is just like, I'm going to give you this shit and I know it's good for you. I'm going to force feed it. And then, you know, when you come to, you'll, you'll be appreciative of it, um, which we absolutely were. That's a fucking legendary riff to me. Um, the two, the two studs on this song are Zachy and, and Shad's. Um, I can take zero credit, um, on, on any of it, not even as a, a producer and you know, kind of putting some stuff together, but, but really, I mean, the meat and the potatoes, the heart and the soul of that song, if it had two souls or a combination or something, is the riff and the chorus. And that's Zachy's best riff, in my opinion, every time I hear it, even though I played it a thousand fucking times and heard it a million times. Um, it doesn't get old. It makes me, and the older I get, the more I appreciate the guys for it. When Matt sang that chorus for the first time, I was blown away. I was like... We can write anything.
And that we can write anything mindset, that fearlessness was something that appealed about Avenged Sevenfold before I had even heard a note of their music. And I know that's quite a confusing sentence, but let me take you back to the time itself, seeing as we're going back about 20 years. We're talking pre-Spotify and pre-streaming. The iPod boom was still going on, but it was pretty difficult to discover underground bands or breaking bands that weren't on a major label. And so at that point in time, the print press and music reviews were still a big deal. And I remember the reviews were starting to appear of Waking the Fallen, And we'll get to the music in a second, but straight away, that classic Waking the Fallen press pick hit me like a ton of bats. You know the one, they've got their black nail polish, their black hair, their black eyeliner, their black jeans, their black album cover. You know what I'm saying, right? And then getting Waking the Fallen and hearing Unholy Confessions for the first time, it remains one of my favourite ever musical discoveries. I had the record, and before I even got to Chapter 4, I just played Unholy Confessions again and again and again, and a what the fuck is going on here, you know? And to this day, I think Waking the Fallen is an all-time classic, full of incredible songs. And when you look at that body of work, Unholy Confessions to this day is still definitively the song that defines this era of Avenged Sevenfold and the changing face of metal at that point in time, which we'll get to a little bit later on. There is a bigger question here, though. As it's the song that broke the band, and I know Backcountry did that on a larger scale, but as the song that started everything, is there an argument The Unholy Confessions is the most important song in the entire Avenged Sevenfold back catalogue. And I laugh because wait for Sinister Gates' answer here. A hundred percent. I wouldn't wouldn't disagree with that. That could be uh, the backbone song. That absolutely and probably is. And most assuredly is. A hundred percent. hundred and ten percent. I feel like it was the perfect combination of all those influences that we were really digesting at that time. Um, everything from Out the Gates to Iron Maiden to Pantera to hardcore, you know, a, l- a lot of hardcore influence with the, the breakdowns. And then a little bit of punk rock. I mean, it had every single thing in it and it starts off, you know, a record that sounded different than everything at the time. And I think that particular song kind of um, encapsulates everything about that record in one, you know, one sort of, sort of go at it. And it, it was one of those songs that, you know, people could quickly digest and understand, um, especially that Warped Tour audience. They kind of got it. And there was, there's dramatic moments in it. Um, and so I think it, it kind of checked all the right boxes for us. And so I, I wouldn't disagree that it, it might be our most important song. Well, I think for us, it was an obvious turning point in the right direction, um, an undeniable moment where we all realized that we had something unique that was still being completely true to our roots and all the underground music that we loved. And we made the conscious decision while rehearsing, you know, uh, in pre-production for the album to let Matt sing instead of just screaming because uh, where we come from during the, you know, early hardcore 
scene years, it was kind of unheard of to do any sort of singing. And, you know, we felt like that was kind of holding us back. And we all loved Matt's voice. And I especially loved any chance, you know, on sounding the seventh trumpet when Matt would sing a chorus or, you know, actually use his voice versus the scream. Because originally Unholy was kind of screaming all the way through. And then all of a sudden, you know, the first line in the song after he screams it, when he's, he's saying that melody, we were all just like, this is the direction. This is what you have to do. And we never looked back. I'll try. She said as she walked away, tried not to lose you. Two vibrant notes could change. We do this every record. There's always these songs that kind of go deep down their own little kind of nooks and crannies, right? They kind of they kind of do these things as a whole and they kind of participate in the record as a whole. But then there's always those songs that you're like, they kind of stand out as like, okay, you could take that out of all of this and people are going to get it. And Unholy Confessions really does that. It's got the chorus. It's got the fast stuff. It's got the heavy stuff. And I think um, when you look at all the other songs, they kind of go deeper into their own vibes. They're not really like a smorgasbord of stuff. And I think, um, I think Backcountry did the same thing. It just kind of was a perfect thing to pull out of the record and go, oh, I get this. And so Unholy Confessions clearly did that. And I think we probably sensed that right away. And um, it just made sense. Yeah, you have to really get in the hot tub time machine and travel back to the time itself to understand the journey Unholy Confessions went through before becoming the band's breakthrough moment. Back in 2002, the radio had some heavier music on it, like System of Down or Slipknot, but those bands are totally different to what Sevenfold were bringing to the table. We're going to stick with Matt for a second just to explain how grassroots and old school the band's approach and trajectory was at this point in time. And please do listen out for the best description I have ever heard of Avenged, courtesy of the band's maestro frontman himself. I think if you go back to like just the work ethic, what we are willing to do, that we are willing to not have jobs, that we are willing to you know, put all the eggs in that basket and just say, we're going to make music. We'll see where we end up. You know, there's, it's not that big of a deal to go from 18 to 24 and give it a shot, right? We're just giving it a shot. We're making music and we had no plan after that. You know, it wasn't like we said, oh, 18 to 24. We just said, we're just going to go on tour. We're going to make this record and we're going to get in a van and we're going to, and we got lucky with a warp tour and we're just going to go. And we had no money and we didn't know what we were going to do, but it was like, we knew that there was truck stops everywhere. And you could just stop and we knew we were going to eat because Warped Tour fed you once a day. And we are just going to, you know, live the dream. And I just feel like that, I don't know how that exists these days. I don't know. I think there's so much like either you're successful or you're not. And there's online pressure and there's, you know, we sold 125,000 records of Waking the Fallen on an independent before we ever got talked to by a major. And, you know, that was all from just, driving city to city, playing 18 shows in a row out in the dirt. And, and then just continuing to just have no foresight of what could happen. Just purely play the show, sell 10 CDs. Maybe you sold 17, maybe you sold three that day. And then you're just marking it down. Like, you know, here we go. And I just think 
I can't put myself in anyone else's shoes. I just know that for us at that time, that was our only option. And we didn't think about radio. We didn't think about MTV. We were making anti-radio music. It was literally anti-radio music. There's no way that was going to get picked up. Like we didn't want to be picked up. You know, it was, we had the ethics of no effects and bad religion warp tour. And we had the, the sound that was just different because it was blending Ozfest and hardcore. And we, and we also had a chip on our shoulder about Ozfest. We were like, this is lame metal. Like we want, we, we play hardcore. We play like VOD or sick of it all, or, or, you know, 18 visions or Bane or like, we're playing hardcore, like punk rock. And um, so it was just like anti everything becomes the mainstream at some point. And it's so weird. And you got to try and keep, even to this day, try to keep those ethos and just the, you know, no one's in control of my destiny. No one's in control of our band's destiny, no matter if the radio embraces you or the labels embrace you. You got to keep those ethics or, or you just become a part of that, that machine. Up until the release of that album, we had been touring on Sounding the Seventh Trumpet. And not to say that it wasn't fun, but it was really rough. I mean, we were playing in shitholes all across America every night of the week for months and months. I mean, entire years straight to very few fans trying to get the name out there. And, you know, the overall sound of that album might have been too, too underground and people weren't ready for it. And we were just kids at the time. So with Unholy, when the album was finished and recorded, I knew that we had something special to the point that I went and spent every dollar I had to buy a boombox so I could listen to the CD of it at my house. And I was like, man, this is great. This is exactly where we need to be. And when fans started catching on and it was resonating with them, it really took on a life of its own because all of a sudden bigger bands were asking us to open for them. I remember getting a call saying AFI wants you to open their orange County show. And we were billed after death by stereo, which was one of the bands that influenced us heavily in the very early days. Cause they're such a unique, awesome orange County band. And all of a sudden we're playing after them and playing before AFI who we completely loved at that, you know, just, a great band um, that was dominating the scene. So we're playing in front of thousands of people with bands that we love, respect, and then that's being, you know, taken all across the country. And so we started playing with, you know, higher caliber of bands. And I'm not knocking any of the bands that we started with in the early days, but bigger shows and getting offers to travel across the pond. All of a sudden, you know, we're playing, in Europe for the first time, you know, in, in London, we sold out, you know, the underground yeah, and the, the shows were just absolutely insane. And, uh, at that point and we're young and we're just reckless and, you know, getting in fights at the crowbar and Jimmy going to jail. And all of a sudden the story starts building and the magazines start picking up on it. They're like, who the fuck are these guys? You know, they're all these guys wearing makeup and dressed in black and having their fingernails painted playing this, Iron Maiden, Guitar Solo, Pantera, Metallica, AFI, Goth, Hybrid, and getting in fights and getting in trouble. Like, what, what is going on? And then all of a sudden, it just took on a life of its own, and it gave people an opportunity to dive into the album and see, you know, hear songs like Second Heartbeat and Reminiscence and hear the dueling guitar parts, um, the orchestrations, you know, it, songs like I Won't See You Tonight, Part One, these big ballad epic ballads and 
you know, going straight into these almost Meshuggah, um, Pantera, you know, I won't see you tonight part two songs. And I think people really just gravitate towards that album because it was, it reminds them of, of that time and place. And I think we captured it perfectly. I don't recall much radio for this song. Uh, there might've been some, you know, back in the day, there were some uh, radio stations across the country that played a little heavier music. If they had XM radio, it was in its very infantile time. So I, I don't think anyone was subscribed to that. I mean, we're still talking FM radio. So there really wasn't very many options for a song like this to get played. But yeah, it was, it, I think, to my recollection, what really made this song pop was the was the music video getting played on MTV too. At the time, there was, you know, Headbangers Ball was over there. Um, this is a time for a lot of people who may not be old enough to remember where there was that shift from hardcore and hardcore punk going into metal, and everyone was calling it metalcore, whatever that meant. But there was several bands across the country that were doing it and doing it well, and we were one of them. We got lumped into it. We always felt that we were, we were different. You know, we, everyone likes to think they're different and special. Um, but we were, we were a part of that movement, really, if you look back at it. We're a band that's always grinded. We've never, you might think that this was handed to us or, or that, but I mean, we've toured every single fucking market. We were in two cars, a truck with a camper that didn't fit on it um, to a piece of shit van that broke down a billion times, a van that we left in fucking Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, drove a U-Haul home, um, a, a, a fucking, a nicer van. And those were the Wake in the Fallen days. Um, probably nicer van status. So there was exciting moments. Of course, you see it on MTV too. You see the video. It's your first real video. It's incredible, right? So you see different moments. You see sparks and stuff. But, but there's always like different things like lifestyle changes, Lifestyle didn't change. My lifestyle has been a slow evolution, <laughs> even at our most successful points, which you can argue that we're at our most successful point. We're now legacy band status and the offers are better and we're playing bigger shows, yada, yada, yada. But it's, but lifestyle wise, you know, I live in a relatively modest house for, for technically being a D list celebrity, you know, and I don't feel like there was ever any over, overnight successes. And so, and we didn't expect anything back then. And maybe in city of evil after Backcountry took off, we expected, now I was, I just thought seize the day was going to take over the world and it did not. And after that, I, I kind of just realized this is the band that we are. And I never had aspirate or I never had false pretenses that there was ever going to be anything but grinding and pure passionate art making to fulfill that creative void. And that has to be paramount. And that stuck with me. There's professional um, success highlights that are pretty incredible. And Unholy Confessions had a handful of its own, but there was never any overnight successes for us. We haven't fucking stopped grinding. I don't think we ever will. Something that's truly fascinating about the members of Avenged Sevenfold and their collective ethos is that they are resolutely and unapologetically themselves. And I mean that both as people and, I guess, more pertinently here, as artists, because... 
There exists a will to take over the world, but to do it on your own terms in this band. And that is such a courageous way of being to have as your natural mindset. Was it just blind faith in what you were creating that made you believe in yourselves and what you were doing at that point in time? If the radio aren't going to play you and you're just going from show to show, is it blind faith that fuels your will at that point in time? I think a lot of the blind faith was helped by not having the internet because there was no like, you're only talking to people really face to face, right? About things about like genres and this and that. And you know, we would notice in real life, there's a lot of people that liked no effects in Pantera, you know, but I feel like nowadays it would be like, where do you go to talk to those people that have that interest? Right. Or, and, and I, I, I would be worried to see what the online sort of culture would have geared us towards because it was just a lot easier to be kind of um, free of our our, our willingness to experiment and stuff because we just didn't know any better. And we really did love bands like Pantera and Metallica, but to be honest, we didn't know how to get that sound. We didn't like, we were trying to be heavy like those bands and it was coming off in more in a hardcore way. But a lot of it was just, a lot of it was just experimenting and, and thinking we were doing something that we really weren't. It was a little different than what we thought we were doing. And you know what I mean? Like looking back on it and it was creating something that was obviously you know, these are young kids from Orange County, California, trying to mix in, you know, Blind Guardian and Children of Bodom and At The Gates and Pantera with hardcore. And I just don't know how else you could grow up with an online culture. I, I just know that that little melting pot in California for us was a perfect little stew for us to be doing what we were doing. And it was kind of nice to not have everybody's input from around the world at the time. And I think, you know, yeah, we, we just were writing good, what I think were good melodies and good songs and, and it is what it is. And, um, I wish I had a better, more thought out answer, but it's kind of, it's, it, it's kind of like, should be inspiring for younger artists because sometimes it's okay just to not know, like nobody knows in this life, like just create. And if you love it, I think other people will react to it. You know, we're just, we're all kind of the same thing at the end of the day. And we all just want to feel something. And if you feel it, Someone else probably out there is going to feel it. One thing we've always stuck by is I think a lot of bands chase their older audience and they try to go, well, oh, if we pick this, it's not necessarily the best song and it doesn't necessarily represent everything, but it's going to keep those older fans happy. And I think we've always kind of rejected that. Um, I remember one perfect instance was Hail to the King. We were like, this is going to be a shock when we release this song, but we really truly felt it was the best song on the record. And so, and felt like the best single. So we went with it and we knew that it was going to, you know, kind of alienate some people. I think other bands, they go for something heavier, faster at first to kind of work their audience in. But I think, I mean, who knows if that's a mistake or not? I mean, it's all just, it is what it is. But we clearly did that on City of Evil. We tried to kind of, we put out Beast and the Harlot. It was a reaction. Then we went for Trashed and Scattered and Burn It Down because we were worried about everybody freaking out. And But I think with Unholy Confessions, it's nice because you have this clean slate. You don't really have anyone 
that, I mean, it is funny because when we put out Waking the Fall and I still got a couple emails from people that said we sold out from the sounding the seventh trumpet crowd. And I remember these emails really well because at the time we'd only sold like a few hundred CDs, but it was still enough for somebody to be so mad at us about, you know, waking the fallen. And I remember this particular email was like, congratulations, you're now a mall core band. I hope you die in hot topic. Whoa, dude, we're not even like a big band, but these people are mad. So yeah, it's picking a single is weird, but you got to remember waking the fallen wasn't really picked as a single. It kind of came out. And then Lewis Posen, I mean, it started who owned hopeless records at the time. It came out and then like, then we shot a music video for it. You know, it was doing well. So it got a music video. Like there wasn't like a place for it to be played. It wasn't really like, it wasn't really a single. It was just kind of people, I guess they kind of went towards it in a way, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything traditional that we expect nowadays. It was just so underground and like, let's put it out there and see what happens. As Sin was mentioning earlier on, in the United States of America, the band just released this record and kept grinding it out on the road. And it wasn't until America's most beloved summer touring festival that the band really started to see the impact of Waking the Fallen and in particular, Unholy Confessions. It was like every week you're selling, you know, a certain amount of CDs and it just kept going and going and going and going. You know, until the major labels started sniffing around, it was, we just had no clue what was happening because we didn't, we had no way to track that stuff. We had no real way to, we didn't have a, you know, at the time we didn't have a, like a real publicist. We just, we were just so in the dark and just on the road. I mean, probably the way it should be. It probably worked out the way it should be because we weren't obsessing over anything. It didn't feel different. You know, we, one thing we did know is that they kept moving us to the bigger stages at Warp Tour. So that was a big thing. And then we would get to play with like bands that were much bigger than us and had, you know, MTV at the time. And we would just go up there and we would, we were that band that had the craziest crowd every day, you know, like maybe not the biggest, but the wildest, like, and every, and Warped Tour was being overrun with hardcore kids, you know, like these, or whatever we call now, like the mall core kids or whatever, you know, like wearing black, doing, you know, dancing, not moshing you know, and just kind of a mixture of everything. And so that was our only real sort of, um, you know, sort of like North Star was like, okay, we're going towards this thing, but these fans are kind of starting to accumulate around the band and, and all the shows are getting bigger and bigger. I remember New Jersey was just like a total turning point. You get to those little pockets where they like, you know, Southern California punk rock, even on the East Coast, there's some of those pockets. And um, New Jersey was one we showed up and we go to do a signing and it's just, can't see the end of the line. We have 30 minutes on stage. They can't see the end of the people. And it's just, just went off. And it's like, you, you definitely had these pockets around the United States and Warped Tour. It was just, it was just insane where it felt like home, you know, and, and that was pretty cool. Well, that's when we really started noticing when you're, when you're playing Warped Tour and you start having, you know, that the bands are considered the headliners, um, the, the biggest bands that are built on the Warped Tour standing on the side of the stage every night to see your set and you're, you know, standing amongst some of your idols that are watching you and you giving it your best performance. And all of a sudden, you know, you start getting those calls from, uh, you know, major record labels like, Hey, so-and-so from Sony or DreamWorks or, you know, Warner brothers or, you know, every label in the world, they're going to be out at this show. They want to see you guys play. And we're like, you know, 
whatever, we're just going to do what we do. I'm, I'm more excited that you got Davey Havoc standing on the side of the stage watching us. And uh, as all of us were, you know, we're just excited to see all of our peers respecting what we did and being different on Warp Tour and making friends along the way, you know, bands like Good Charlotte and stuff. It's like those bands were massive on the radio and on television. And all of a sudden, you know, we're hanging out with them, becoming friends. So it was really just such an incredible time. And then we went off and, you know, teamed up. We had My Chemical Romance opening up for us on the, you know, Wake in the Fallen tour. And we're playing clubs, you know, 500 to a thousand capacity, but every single show was sold out because they had this huge buzz around them. And, um, you know, we had this buzz and looking back at the time, it's just so funny to think, you know, my cam opening up for us in these small rooms, like what a fun show for the people that were there, but you could feel that something was happening. Um, it was undeniable and it wasn't until, you know, that kind of set the, set the groundwork for, um, these bigger entities, record labels wanting to, you know, try and bring this to a, a bigger audience. And it really didn't happen for us until, you know, City of Evil. And that was kind of here in the States, the moment where everything changed when Backcountry got picked up by K-Rock, which is, you know, the, one of the biggest radio stations here in, in America for, for rock and alternative music and MTV, proper MTV picked up the video to play on um, Total Request Live, which was like fucking Britney Spears. And, and all of a sudden that changed everything. And that wasn't, you know, the record labels doing. That was K-Rock had seen us play at a Warp Tour, you know, at a 12.30 in the afternoon. And they were like, this is cool. We're going to give it a spin. And, and that's kind of when it blew up. But Waking set the stage for all of that. Songs like Unholy... Uh, Second Heartbeat, you know, those were what we were playing. And that, that kind of set the stage for everything. We did funny things because we were trying to be different. I remember you'd walk out there and, you know, Warped Tour is two stages side by side and there'd be whatever band was playing and then there'd be all these kids in black just waiting, you know, on the, on our side. And, just, and then they'd be chanting sevenfold in between other bands. And it was like, it was like that kind of thing. And then I remember the night and I think it was Montreal, somewhere in Canada, like the last night of the tour, Kevin said we could, headline the whole tour right so we were playing after bad religion and um we went and got fog machines and we did fog machines on warp tour i remember i was so obsessed with getting fog machines like we had to go rent them from this place and we had to drive a few hours and we got them and kevin's just like he let us do it but it was just so anti-warp tour right it was like so not what he wanted warp tour to be and so we but that's that day went down in like like warp tour lore because kevin lyman still talks about it. he's like and these guys get ego risers and come out with fog machines and but but it went off. It was awesome, right? Like we ended the day and it was going into the dark and it was it was one of those moments where everyone was rolling their eyes at us, but then they talk about it still because it was just like the gall of these guys. Like, like what are they thinking? But um, and so yeah, I mean we we did have that summer, but there's always been a difference between us and I almost feel like every other band. We never had like that. Like Mike Hem had one record out and they blew up. Fall Out Boy had huge songs on K-Rock. They played all day. We never had any of that. We had like, we'd have one song or record that would do pretty well and everything just kept going upward. But it was never, it was so different for us. It never felt like we had like that aha moment. Oh, 
We are definitely painting an accurate picture when we tell you about Avenged having a seismic impact on the global populace, a warp tour, and all of those things. But it was actually a band out of Massachusetts that were the first to have a breakthrough album from what was to be known to the greater world as Metalcore. Killswitch engages Jesse Leach fronted classic Alive or Just Breathing with its chugga chugga guitar tone, those two-step hardcore parts and bringing back lead guitars after the new metal era was something of a revelation to the global rock scene and it was that record that lit the match for a whole bunch of what was to come out of california that record changed the way i looked at this style of music that i would eventually start playing i was way elitist i liked southern california punk rock from the 90s and metal from the late 80s and early 90s. I did not listen to anything else at the time. I mean, the occasional pop stuff would get my, my hip shaking and stuff like that. You know, I wasn't, wasn't that much of an elitist. But when it came to rock, I was an elitist. I did not like screaming, aside from when Phil did it. Phil was the only one because I could hear notes when he was screaming. And, and I felt like Melody was, and I'm a high school kid, thinking I'm a I'm hot shit musician. Obviously, as we talked about before, I was not. Um, but I thought I was. And I listened to, I, I forget, I listened to a lot of 80s metal too. I loved glam rock. I loved Skid Row. I loved all that shit. Um, yeah, so I never really got the screaming thing for a while. And one of the bands that changed my mind about that was Killswitch with the Alive or Just Breathing record. I don't think we were very conscious of it, but I think subconsciously that record was our Rosetta Stone of how to, how to put together a, a metal core Record. I don't know what the fuck you'd call us back then, but some people would refer to it as, as screamo. That drives me nuts. Um, metalcore, other things. But it was just like melodic metal, you know? It was fucking crazy riffs, super heavy fucking drums, screaming. Just It was just this hybrid of, uh, it was almost pop meets hardcore. In fact, it is pop meets hardcore. And and those there was no better band at the time doing it, and probably since um, than Killswitch. And we had that record on at all times. Got to be, got to be truthful here. Um, so again, we didn't talk about it. We didn't listen to it in the studio. Although back then we didn't listen to much shit in studio. It wasn't so student e educational. It was it was very raw, drawing from the components that existed and not searching for other. I mean, we just kind of chock full of shit and hadn't released any of the stuff yet. So, but yeah, if you had, if I had to pinpoint something or the closest thing to an actual Rosetta stone for us, a template in which to build upon to this day. when I listen back to that record, it brings a smile to my face, just the pure nostalgia. I just brings me back to my high school days, blasting that record in my 76 Camaro. Some of the times there was melody to the screams, but it showed me that it didn't always need to have melody to the screams too, like Phil always did, or mostly did, let's say. And then I was I was just drawn to those vocal melodies on Alive or Just Breathing, where the choruses would come in. You know, you have the heavy verses, and then, you know, that, that was kind of the thing to do at this time. Heavy verses, you don't really need a verse melody per se. You just, we're going to heavy that up, and then we're going to open up into this this melodic chorus or or bridge. And I thought that they were... At the time, the best ones doing it. 
uh, we hadn't written Wake in the Fallen yet, so I wasn't, you know, or I don't want to say we. The rest of the boys hadn't written Wake of the Fallen yet, so I, I hadn't I hadn't hitched my wagon to that yet. Um, I was just a big fan of, of Killswitch, and I was like, that was the first band that really opened my eyes to what that genre could be, you know. And uh, kudos to them because that I mean, still to this day, they've had some great records. Don't get me wrong, and I hate to be one of those people who's like, oh, nothing's as good as that record. But for me, because of what it what it changed in my life, Alive or Just Breathing is is like, to me, it's that staple time of, of you know, the early 2000s, metalcore, metal, whatever the fuck you want to call it, the hard rock scene that was happening then. That's, that, that kind of encompasses it to me. And I know a lot of people, especially listening to this, will say, no, it was Waking the Fallen. Yeah, it came a little, it came a year later, okay? Like, I'd already listened to Alive or Just Breathing for a little while. I love that record. And I was always like a Jesse guy. You know, I couldn't even believe they were moving on. So that, yeah, that, that, yeah, that record was incredible. It was a big influence, but to be honest, you know, bigger influences on us were the Green Droplet record by VOD, Poison the Well. In terms of metalcore stuff, it was like Nevermore was actually, we never really talk about them, but that, that Nevermore record was a huge influence on the soloing and stuff and the production. There was also a band called Nocturnal Rights that we were really into at the time. Um, I remember they were a big influence on just like production, even though we really never got that sound or really went for it. It was kind of the, something that we were always listening to. And then um, even like a big influence on like um, eternal rest, which is on that record. A lot of that was influenced by euthanasia, the Megadeth record, like where they're doing the acoustic guitar arpeggios and stuff. And like Dave Mustaine always did that stuff. Um, but kill search engage was a big influence, but I always, I never really bought into the, the big four of whatever we always kind of like thought of ourselves as something different. That was just kind of a media thing. I love that record, but yeah, like we wouldn't even be doing anything that we're doing without poison the well and VOD. There are so many cool things that have come from the digital revolution and the digital age when it comes to the evolution of music. What I mean by that is in a more digital world, we get influence from all genres, all corners of the world, and it's led to really killer art being made if you're looking in the right places. I think it's also done quite cool things to the pop charts as well. Having influence from things like BTS and Blackpink, having things from all over the globe come to pop music and come to music in general to bring a different perspective can only be a good thing. But one of the things that doesn't happen as much is when a regional scene truly has a mark on the map. And that's particularly true for rock music, right? Seattle and grunge is the obvious one that people talk about when a regional scene truly blows up and has global impact. And there's the Sunset Strip for 80s glam and the Bay Area is known for thrash and New York hardcore. You know what I'm talking about. But I think think the SoCal scene when hardcore and skate punk and metal all got fused together to make that classic SoCal metalcore sound. I think that scene is one of the most underrated to ever hit rock music. When you look at 
the lovelorn gothic stylings of the mighty bleeding through and the rock star attitude and knack for pop melodies that came from a treu in that period. 18 Visions had kind of a guttural, chaotic, metallic, hardcore sound and then they had their own kind of hard rock epiphany. I want to shout out the Pantera-leaning era of hardcore heroes throwdown. It was a really awesome time for metal metalcore in California and it influenced not only the sound of metal but their look was so iconic and it had impact there and while those bands all live in the same area today and they're all friends as human beings who've come as far as 2023 and so many of those bands are still going and they're still playing the music that they loved as kids. At the time, it was a pretty love-hate relationship that the bands all had with one another. You know, competition is king. Man, it was... I hate to say that it wasn't competitive, it certainly was competitive. Um, we got a lot of athletes in, in the band, Matt and Jimmy, varsity basketball players. Um, Zachy, a varsity baseball player. I was a very com- competitive surfer growing up and played played a ton of sports, but never like excelled at traditional sports, but surfed all my life. And anybody who's gone out and surfed in Huntington knows that's one of the most competitive things. We're all very, very competitive um, with each other and, and with other bands, we were at the time. At this point, it's a it's a better period in our lives where we're we're competitive with each other and ourselves, um, but not so much with other bands. Especially having accomplished what we've accomplished in the last couple records, we now know we can do stuff that nobody else can do, and we feel great about that. Just like the Metallicas of the world can do shit that nobody else, the Panteras of the world, you know, the Beatles and stuff like that. Knowing that and feeling that is is extremely, extremely gratifying and confidence instilling. But at the time, I mean, we we knew what we were capable of. We knew where we came from. I knew that Jimmy and, and I were in Pinkly Smooth, and that was a fucking next level uh, breed of creativity. Um, I heard some of the greatest riffs from Zachy Vengeance and some of the greatest... Uh, vocal melodies, um, one of my favorite voices of, of all time, probably my favorite voice uh, of all time in, in M. Shadows, um, who didn't sound like anybody else. So we had originality. We had a guy who was as different sounding as Axl Rose or James Hetfield or Paul McCartney, or Dave Mustaine, all these super unique voices. We had we had a, a fucking um, a unicorn, you know, that's the, that's the thing. We got identity. Um, now can we write the songs? And the fucking answer is you're sure as shit fucking better bet that we can fucking write these songs. We absolutely have the capability to do things at a really high level across all, um, different facets, um, necessary facets of of being a successful band. Um, and I knew that then, and, um, I don't think I analyzed it as much as I I am kind of right now, but but there was that fire fucking burning where you just you just knew, like, I want to do big shit. We're going to do big shit. And we'll just keep on track and, and grinding. And after a few years, we did. You know, funny enough, it was the best of times and the worst of times. We were all coming up together. And every single band that you had mentioned 
could be on top of the game in Orange County or opening for the other band and swapping spots. Atreyu got signed to Victory Records. Avenged Sevenfold was smaller than Atreyu. Bleeding Through and 18 Visions were headlining and selling out Chain Reactions. Avenged Sevenfold was opening for them. Avenged Sevenfold, you know, had my chem opening for them. We we're selling out Chain Reaction. We were just uh, fully flip-flopping. Um, and we were taking that all across the country. We were all touring together. And there was times, you know, it, it was competitive. There's no doubt about it. We all wanted to be the band to break out of Orange County. And we all did different things. Um, and we all had, you know, some similarities, but at the end of the day, we always liked each other and respected each other. When Bleeding Through came out with an album or 18 Visions came out with an album or a Treyu, we would get that album. We would listen to everything. We would critique it. We'd be like, fuck, that's pretty fucking good. Like, oh, they did that. Fuck, that's, that's good. Like, fuck, we need to step up our game. And so it was like, what they were doing was amazing. Watching 18 Visions, they were one of the best live bands they fucking looked awesome they were they were fucking rock stars they were bringing an arena show to chain reaction at the time and i always feel like those bands really deserved a lot more recognition like on the grander scale because i th think what they were doing was really really great and to see all you know bands still still doing it the the difference is is now is now we're all just happy for each other we're we're grown-ups and so it's not it hasn't become competitive we all realize that Whichever direction life takes you, you're going to have your ups and downs no matter what happens. So we're great friends with the Atreyu guys. We're friends with the Bleeding Through guys. You know, when you see the 18 Visions guy, I think James is one of the most clever fucking funniest dudes that ever existed on the planet. And he was before his time. And all those people influenced what we do. And to say that we could be where we are without those bands and without the scene that we came out of... Um, would be a complete lie. They all, they were all part of what we do. And hopefully what we did was a little bit a part of what they did. And um, so, yes, there was competition, but there was a lot more respect and inspiration amongst each other, I think. Yeah, looking back on it, I mean, we really were the black sheep of Orange County. Um, you know, we had friends, you know, like the James Hearts and the and the the Brandon Chipettis of the world, and people that in the, the Atreus of the world. But really, there was a little bit of competition, and they were also older than us. Some of those guys, and I think they'd get us on shows for reasons of like just friendship and stuff. But I I I know that during um, you know sounding the seventh trumpet there was a lot of, um, in the very beginning, it was kind of like, oh, cool, another hardcore band, cool. And then as soon as it started, people started hearing things like Darkness Surrounding and Harmonies and these different things, then we started getting made fun of a lot. Like, it was like, you guys don't fit in. Like, there's no way. And then we started getting bigger. And then there was really like this, we hate Avenged Sevenfold. Like, they're not like, this is just, it's butt rock, it's glam metal, it's whatever it is, right? Like, there's, sort of, we were the first ones that were really creating a fan base outside of that scene that had kind of, you know, the Petri dish of like coming up in chain reaction or showcase theater. And it was very weird to watch things kind of shift, right? Like where it was like, now we can go headline these plays and we probably play them multiple nights and it will be a bunch of people that'll be there that aren't from this, our scene. Cause we'd go to shows and you knew every motherfucker there. It was like, I know everybody in this pit. I know everybody like selling merch. I know. And then all of a sudden it was like, Oh, all these people were flooding in from 
you know, during the wake in the fallen era, it was like, it's just a completely different thing. It was like, and, and I think it was us and like thrice that had kind of broken out. And, um, there was a lot of, I wouldn't say resentment, but it was also a lot of like, kind of, we were kind of like, eh, we were very provocative towards that scene. We made fuck hardcore pins. We did a bunch of stuff. We'd sell it at the merch booth. Like all we would see online is hate for us. And it was like, what do we do? Like, and so there was a lot of like little nitpicky things. Um, but I think, um, you know, that's, that's all about finding your audience. Our audience wasn't, there's a scene and they, and they like one thing and they like your bands to be scene bands. And if you break out of that, these are kids that these are kids and fans that feel so closely tied into that culture and those bands that if they do break out and new people start talking about them, and it's a different sound and it's this and that there's very few of them that want to go on that ride with you. They, they kind of want you to be, you know, their band. And so we, ha- we definitely had that and we had to, and we were, we're lucky that we have like those, I guess those very much um, fuck you personalities that were like, cool later. Like, you know, like we're, we're not going to stick around and worry about this. We're not going to try to write songs and make you happy. We're just going to go deeper into it. We're going to step into it even harder. And I think that helped us in the long run because it allowed us to kind of not get too stuck anywhere. to talk music theory with Sin. But first, let's just talk a little bit about his journey in particular. If you've checked out our other episodes of Tracks, and if you haven't, why not? You should do that sometime. You'll already know that Sin and Jimmy had this incredible musical relationship that actually stretched back before the boys were ever even in Avenged Sevenfold together. They started as teens in their funk, freak, metal, jazz, whatever the fuck it wants to be stylings of the band Pinkly Smooth and Jimmy eventually got Sin to join Sevenfold just as Sounding the Seventh Trumpet was being completed and so Waking the Fallen represented the first time that Sin and Jimmy and the band had written together as a unit. This is Sin's account of how that process started to take form. So at that point I had already been writing um, a little bit like I said, we all grew up together, so it wasn't like I didn't feel a part of the band, but I, the type of personality that I, that I am, I, if I feel like I'm imposing at all, I like to go away, <laughs> far, far away, even to a fault. Um, I just no, don't ever want to be a burden on anybody. So aside from that weird self-construct, um, it felt pretty, pretty natural to be there. Um, I felt, I definitely felt wanted. We had already kind of talked about, uh, my inclusion in songwriting and different things like that. And so basically it was just a front and center seat to peek into our potential because as far as, you know, sounding goes, which I'm a huge fan of, and I was hanging out fucking bringing whiskey and non-filtered Chesterfield cigarettes to, to the dudes. Well, that'd be Zachy and Jimmy, uh, I fucking, um, I, I, I love that record. I love that record. But to me, that record has a ceiling, you know, it's, and, and I was comfortable with a ceiling 
Um, I'm a guitar geek, you know, by nature and got into songwriting inadvertently because I was just surrounded by too much fucking genius to not try, um, you know, to take a, a stab at the craft. And, and so when those, some of those songs, Unholy was one of them, Reminiscence was another. Those are probably the two biggest standouts where I thought, holy fuck, we can do anything. That was kind of the beginning of it. Now, I may have said that in a couple of other uh, tracks episodes that, that we've done. And, and yes, the ceiling kind of gets up. But as, as I don't know, how, how old was I then? Like 20 years old or whatever it was. Um, tw- um, probably a little later, 22, 22 years old. The awakenings you have at that age, at those ages, teens and then early 20s are, are fucking crazy. So yes, I've, I've come to different revelations or scaled down revelations of what our potential is and what we can keep doing and that there aren't really any boundaries because you think, well, if there's a boundary there, how do I do this? Like you, you can con- constantly do that. But the original fucking epiphany of we can do anything, that's where it started. It started with reminiscences and most especially with unholy confessions. Music theory with Sin. Uh, I just wanted to ask you from off the bat because I I just realised we there hasn't been much of it on this episode. Jimmy on Unholy Confessions, you guys as a duo had written before with Pinkly Smooth, but this is your first time writing together with Avenged Sevenfold. Can you tell me what the difference in songwriting dynamic was? <laughs> yeah, it's a lot more structure. Um, Pinkly Smooth, we just wrote, and I, I think it was, I, I felt very fortunate that um, everything that Jimmy wrote, I, I didn't want to touch. And everything that I wrote, Jimmy didn't want to touch. And I think it's going to sound like this is a disparaging sort of analysis of it, but it, but it's not. It's just the way this band works, and it works this way till today. It's much more arduous. It's much more painstaking. And, and basically, you know, it was, I'd go to the fucking gym with Matt, and then we'd go and we'd fucking take a look at all the different pieces that bands were contributing in. And kind of put put shit together. It was just it was kind of like long hours day in day out. Um a lot of a lot of jamming to to work out those parts. Everybody was together a lot more rather than like phoning in parts I know and uh, and phoning in not in a bad way, but literally phoning them in. <laughs> uh whereas like all of Jimmy's stuff for the White album, he sent to Matt and I to piece together. And, and he would show up when he woke up, which was about 5 or 6 p.m. And he'd come straight over to the studio in Matt's parents' garage and hand us fucking gold. And we'd go fucking put it together and record the parts. And, you know, sometimes he had the ideas kind of uh, ironed out. And sometimes he's like, I want Wheatley's. Wheatley, Wheatley, Wheatley. And I want the fucking, the, the thing that you do. What the fuck is that? I don't fucking do that with my voice. Like, no, it's the guitar. And I want you to play your B. What my B? Your B, which was Green Sleeves B, the B fucking seven uh campfire chord thing. And he would just come in, fucking hungover, demanding, and it was undeniable because the fucking genius was just so fucking obviously fucking genius. And uh and he was such a spectacle, so 
I mean, he could he he could do no wrong. Jimmy was definitely the golden child. I remember hearing Waking the Fallen like it happened five minutes ago, and there were two riffs on that record, both very Pantera influenced. That were the moments where I went, Oh, yeah, this is beyond just a bit of potential. This band, it's the one in the middle of Eternal Rest that went like the groove on that, and the in this, yeah. And that takes balls to do that when you you come from essentially the hardcore scene, whether you liked it or not, and with your fuck hardcore pins on and your fists raised in the air, going that metal route at that point in time, bolder than people would realise. Do you think that that's a fair analysis of Waking the Fallen, Unholy Confessions, and where you went from there? Yeah, definitely. You know, um, I don't think I realised it at the time. I believe those two riffs are my riffs. Um, I can't, I know the middle of unholy is, but I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's got, that's flat. That's gotta be me. Um, yeah, <laughs> a long time ago. Um, that's exactly what it came from. You know, I, I was just a walking fucking Pantera ripoff con artist. <laughs> um, that's what I wanted. That's what I was doing in pinkly smooth too, you know, but the melodies I'd, I'd contribute and certainly what Jimmy was doing was Danny Elfman inspired, um, Britney Spears inspired. We were obsessed with Britney at the time. Uh, but when I played a guitar, played a riff, it was always very just bendy. Fucking, it just, it had to just be fucking snaky and cutting and, and grooving to me. And, and so, yeah, it comes out of, it comes out of nowhere, you know, and luckily it works or maybe we just played it for 20 years, heard it for 20 years. And so it works. And maybe the chorus is so good. And the first riff is so good. So it works, but either way it works. And, uh, and it, and it adds a bit of depth to that song and gives you, um, kind of a cool moment on stage where you can kind of play it like a shotgun. It's very, very easy to do. It looks, uh, difficult, but it's just a fucking Amir parlor trick. take on the melody itself to the chorus of unholy confessions because it's weird as shit yeah it, it is to me there's a fine line between cheese pop and depth pop that just like fucking speaks to your soul that can work in a in a heavy song or across all all sorts of different genres and the unholy confession chorus melody is so deep to me and um, I, I remember the first thing that I did when I started writing, I started experimenting with, um, well, I was doing it with Pinkly Smooth, but I, I, I was taking most of my power chords, I would flip. So it would be a first and a third, minor third. But when it's in drop D, you have sixth. So if you play like a drop D power chords, like, but add this finger and play it like it's in standard E, you get a sixth, which I believe is a, um, 
is a, a major six is a minor third. So you have D D is up here and the F is in, is in the base, you know, so it's an inversion, technically an in, inversion, of the chord, it's a D minor, but it looks like you're playing F an F chord. And Matt gravitated to that right away. And I'm not trying to take any fucking credit because right. Somebody using a technical tool to write greatness no credit deserved by whoever showed that person the technical thing. Like coming up with the fucking unquantifiable gift of writing a brilliant melody. Um, that's it's magical. There's no AI can't do it fucking yet. Um, you can't teach somebody how to do it. It is the one one of the very few mysteries left on planet Earth to come up with a, a melody that speaks to so many people's soul. That chorus speaks to my soul. It's not cheesy. It's poppy. It's extremely catchy. But I, on the cheese factor that I'm very sensitive to, this is why I don't fucking will ever play Beast and the Harlot again. Cheese factor 10 on Beast and the Harlot. Cheese factor on Unholy Confessions, which is a beautiful pop melody in itself, is negative five. Not even close to registering um, in, the, in the fucking cheesiness factor to me. Anyway, so I, I digress, but basically I just think, that, yeah, it's got to be our, our best chorus, you know? I don't know another one that I'd speak so so passionately about. It's fucking, it's, it's next level, and I thank God that it's ours, you know? I wish I could be Thank you, Sin. Don't forget, subscribe to the podcast because every single month that is something that goes on this show. So we are covering the entire back catalogue of Avenged Sevenfold and it does feel like it would be a stretch to do an hour-long episode on what is basically an instrumental intro track. So we're going to cover Waking the Fallen here, the title track to the album, that is, as it leads in to Unholy Confessions. And I understand that Avenged Sevenfold and the members of Avenged Sevenfold are the band that wrote something as expansive and mind-boggling as the album The Stage. I understand that they're a band that does something as avant-garde and unique as a little piece of heaven. They are a band that has broad, bold, extensive ideas in their back catalogue. But I love the intro, the Waking the Fallen intro, the title track to that record. I think maybe it's nostalgia because pushing play on this CD for the first time and that juddering, staggered approach that leads into the riff kicking off in Unholy Confessions is one of my major loves about this band and this record. But alas, I do understand that the band are a little bit more sceptical of it. And it does represent, let's be honest, some massive AFI worship. We loved AFI, still love AFI, but I mean, AFI was just, the way they had intros, we'd go to those shows and the way that the crowd would get pumped. And, you know, we didn't nail it on Waking the Fall and that intro sucks. The record would be stronger, in my opinion, if it just started off with Unholy Confessions. But 
I do think there should be an intro. I think we, if we could do it over, I would, we could do something better than that. But, you know, it's, it's not like we even played it live. It was just like, it was us trying to nail something that we didn't quite nail. Um, I can say that pretty confidently. Um, but uh, it was just pure AFI love. I think we wrote a better intro, which had um, Beast and the Harlot in it. As and I think what we did was, you know, there's this guy, Scott Gilman, and when Mudrock, I think they took it and they created it into more of sound like an intro. And I just think we should have not let that fly. I think we should have done what we originally set out to do. And there's been a couple moments in our career where we kind of like, let people work on the record in a way that we'd listen and be like, yeah, and we let it fly very little, but in waking the fall and there's one moment, which is the, the intro. And then there's another moment in city of evil that we've just kind of cut all that out of our life in terms of like, we just write everything. Now we, we don't even like string people. We don't even let them like we write every freaking instrument, every string, because if you let people get in there and do their own little taste, it's not, what you want and you hear those certain notes they put in there you're like yeah i should have just taken that out and i didn't so waking the fallen intro is one of those things where we should have just stuck with what we originally planned and, and not let that get taken away Matt had this riff, something like that, but it was a, the heaviest riff ever. And it, the riff itself probably should have made it into a song. And I was sad that it never did, but we took that riff, we chopped it down, we kind of looped it. And then we put these, you know, weird harmonies and sounds to make this intro. Honestly, it probably would have been better off with just the actual riff that it was supposed to be, but we wanted to do something, you know, very AFI inspired uh, on the intro to that album. And uh, honestly, at this point, I haven't listened to it in so long. It's kind of like a, if that album comes on, it's kind of like I skip that and go straight into the song because we were just trying to put something together and cut and paste this intro, um, you know, with a bunch of different vocals and weird melodies and, and kind of chopped up one of my favorite riffs that didn't end up making it fully on the album. You know, portion of it did, but... But yeah, it, it was it was very, you know, AFI inspired. What they were doing at the time was really cool. It was hardcore, it was punk rock, uh, it was dark. Uh, and, and we just, we loved that. You know, seeing them live, it was just like, wow, this is where music needs to head from our scene because hardcore bands started getting a little stale. It was every band just, you know, da, 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 da. I was like, oh man, like that's cool. But there's every single band in Orange County is doing the same thing. Like mix it up, sing. We want people that can sing. Like we, we need some you know, some rock star status out there. Yeah, so I, I probably agree with Matt that it's probably not our finest moment for, for that intro, but it was definitely AFI inspired. I remember hearing it because I wasn't, I don't even think I was there in the studio when it was done. Like, I, I, like, I think I heard it like a couple weeks later when we were doing mixing. I was like, what the fuck is that? It's like, oh, that's how we're opening the record. It's like... <laughs> Awesome, because I thought it was, I thought it sounded so cool, and I was like, dude, we should have made a song off of that. <laughs> but, you know, it, 
it's just like that kind of sets you up too, like where the band was going melodically. You know what I mean? Like just that little snippet. Dun, 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 dun. You know, it's like, and the, 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 the soaring vocals all swelling in together to come into that Zachy famous riff right there. You know, it's like, ah, man, that's a fun time. That's a fun time to listen back, like to, to reminisce on, man. It's throwaway. It's throwaway at best. I mean, I, I didn't even remember it. And now I'm sad that I do like, you know, we just kind of, it, it was a little too experimental and we just didn't have something. And, um, it got to the process where nowadays we would spend another three months on it and fucking 200 grand down the drain just to get a fucking solid intro that we loved. But back, back in those days, I mean, we did what we wanted, but enabled to, in order to get into a studio with a high caliber producer and make those moves, there were consequences to be suffered and timeline stuff was part of it. We wouldn't suffer a timeline for a record label, but if it was somebody like Andy Wallace, you know, Mudrock at the time, Fred Archambault, um, really amazing integral people and, and pieces to, you know, just advancing creatively uh, we made them and that was one that, that happened and one that suffered. The intro definitely suffered for that. There is something so special about the simplicity of the video that we all know and love to Unholy Confessions. It is so real and so raw and the epitome of capturing lightning in a bottle, a real moment in time. In fact, a definitive snapshot, I'd say, of a moment in time. That video really sums it up. But that's the video that we know right? And the more diehard of you may have taken the time to check out the performance video that was released alongside the special edition of Waking the Fallen in 2014. It's all out there on YouTube. But there's a whole lot more to that video and more footage than the public have ever seen. They teamed us up with a guy that had done a couple things for, I think he did Mudvayne's Dig. And I, and you know, someone have to check me on the timing, but I think that's when that, that song had taken off and so then we probably had some small budget, something that we would have never even been cognizant of the time, you know, just sort of, oh, we're doing a music video. Like, I'm sure it was all people in the back scene. This is what you're getting. This is what you're... And the the treatment was just like, it was the typical trope of music videos, right? There's these actors and they're playing out this scene and you guys are in a warehouse. I mean, it couldn't have been more generic. And I remember getting the first cut and it was just, we looked lame. The acting was terrible. The editing was bad. It was just like, this is so lame. And so, you know, we scrapped it. And I don't remember any of those conversations other than we can't put this out. We had a director came in with a concept we were, we were working with. And we, what they kind of latched onto was the album cover, not the sleeve on the outside now. The actual album cover with the the girl with her, with her arm and it's, and it's, you know, coming, you know, all that. And backdrops just weren't good i think we were like in like high school settings or something like that and uh, the girl was like bullied or something like that but then she came back with this power or some shit like that i don't really remember what the concept it, it was per se i just remember like i was watching it and you know at the time we i think we, yeah we came back from like a van store not not warp tour but like a different van store straight off 
the videotape was at Matt's house. We parked the van there. We went inside and watched VHS, by the way, everybody, VHS tape, threw it in um, and watched it for the first time. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Because I was seeing, I, I wasn't paying attention to the concept or anything like that. I was just seeing the five of us on TV. And I was like, this is awesome. Like, like come on, guys. Like, we're on TV. Like, and they're all like, no. <laughs> and, I was like, and I was like, okay, okay. Uh, I learned quickly that it, there was more to making a music video than, than that. And uh, because it, the, the edits just weren't, they, they weren't right. The concept was not great. It just... It looked, it looked college level, you know, not professional level, you know, um, not trying to knock the director or anything like that. It just, it just wasn't right for the song. You know, the concept wasn't right for the song. I, I think we kind of, we kind of learned that we have a better vision as a band than most, most outsiders will. And it's great to collaborate with outsiders, but I think that one was one where we kind of just, it was the first time dealing with anything like that. Right. So we just kind of like let them and kind of trusted the, the people surrounding us and yeah, that sounds okay. Yeah, that sounds good. Let's, let's go with that. Yeah. That's, that's going to look cool. That's going to look cool. And then when we got it back after being edited, we're like, this doesn't look cool. This just looks cheesy, you know? I can't talk too much. One of the other guys, I'm sure, is going to get the concept down. They were way more involved and uh, more mature than I was. You know, they were they were old enough to drink. I was not. So, you know, the, that, that puts it into perspective. Didn't stop you, though. No, it definitely did not. <laughs> <laughs> As for the actual video that was released far and wide, the one that we've all seen a billion times. That video was shot on March 6th of 2004 at the Fonda Theatre on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, California. That's a room that's still hosting bands on the rise to stardom to this very day. And I think that show is one of the single most significant shows in the entire touring history of Avenged Sevenfold. And let me explain what I mean by that. When this band tours again, I would wager that Avenged Sevenfold, at least 95%, if not 100%, of the shows that they will play in the next few years will probably be about 10 times the size of the Fonda in terms of scale and attendance and all that kind of thing. But for a band that had amassed a small but diehard fan base that took over the streets of Hollywood, granted, looking like they'd have been rolled through a Sephora and then kicked through a Hot Topic, but... This is a moment in time where the band were really starting to prove themselves and capturing the band and the fans in tandem at a perfect point in time. I believe that this is an era-defining clip. Quite possibly the biggest landmark moment. We had spent all of our time hitherto touring with other hardcore bands, metalcore, I mean, I've made great relationships. Um, the guys, Poison the Well, Bleeding Through. Um, but it was kind of bridesmaid period, you know? And and that was the first show where I'm looking around going, we're, we're our own fucking thing. And not only that, we're a force to be reckoned with. I mean, this is now starting. You know, we'd seen the match. We probably lit the match ourselves and kind of threw it, but this is the first... Fortunately, a horrible metaphor, but this was the first tree 
that we saw a flame with the forest ahead of us. Um, we knew that we were going to make some noise and that was, that was the show that fucking proved it to me and what an amazing experience. And to share that with the fans and, and put it, put it out there in posterity with such a cool, fun video. I mean, live videos can get kind of old and stale. Um, we've been very fortunate to work with amazing people. Rafa continues to push the boundaries with our, our live videos. So when they come out, it's just like, Oh, I love this band. Look at us. We fuck. What a family. Uh, Oh, funny. Johnny Christ is fucking hilarious. Look at how drunk he is, you know, um, that type of shit. And, but, but it's not just, it's not an easy thing to do. A lot of people kind of just phone it in and then you get a live show. Let's see a fucking circle pit. And the culture isn't there. It's like, it's got some energy and it's like focused on this nuanced energy of a breakdown of a song. Whereas this focused on family and culture. And I, I think looking back on a 20 year career, I can see that we kind of exude culture, um, culture and, and personality and, and family kind of overflow. We're overflowing with that stuff. And I'm, I'm just so thankful for that. And the fans are, are a massive part of that familial aspect and that culture and that video captures all of it and beyond. Um, and it's kind of set the precedent for how to capture that culture, um, that, that fucking luck to just like lightning in the bottle luck that we have. And, and that kind of was the template of, of how to continue to do that. I wish I had a better memory of all that stuff. It just seems like a, such a go, go, go blur, just pure excitement. Like everywhere we went, it was, um, it was, we were becoming that band that no one had ever heard of, but was doing really well in our, our scene, our culture. And, um, that was one of those ones where, you know, you could tell people like, yeah, we're playing the Fonda. Oh, cool. And they're like, Oh, it's sold out. And then you go there and it's just literally the whole concert was outside for six, seven hours in line, you know, and you drive by and you, you're tripping out. It's just crazy. And it's, it's really just this recklessness. You, the stage stuff isn't really thought out the, you know, the, it's just all about the energy and getting up there. And then it's just so loud. You can't, I remember it being so loud. You can't hear yourself. Yeah. It's like, it's like, you're one of them. I mean, I've been, I'd spent so many years going to shows and so many years being that kid in the audience that, you know, it's, it's weird when you take one of them out and you put them on stage and you kind of know how to perform or to act or to, you know, we, we lived it. We grew it up, grew up with it. it was people weren't there for one song. They were there for everything. That's really special. You know, I remember at that time, I remember at that time, always like it was us and thrice. And I remember walking outside of that venue and then hearing kids blare in their trucks uh, thrice records as they were leaving. I remember it was just such a, like a scene, you know, it was like avenged and thrice. We were like the darker, more edgy and they were the more, I guess, sophisticated at the time and what they were doing. And I just remember it was like the two hopeless bands, hopeless records. Uh, it was just so weird. It's cool to think about it. Um, but I just remember, you know, just kind of wanting that world domination, just keep going, keep going and, and don't get stuck. You know, I remember constantly trying not to, do more of that, like move on. Moving on is what got you here. You didn't try to repeat uh, sounding the seventh trumpet. You were, you were doing something different and that's what got you here. So just keep moving on. It was our big show at the time. 
it was our, you know, we had built up a, a, a good following here in the Southern California area from playing LA and Orange County and San Diego. Those were, um, at the time, our biggest venues that we were playing and most fun. That, that was, that was our, that was our crowds. And, uh, so that show was, was already going to be played. I remember we had, a uh, HB Surround Sound, our friends open up. Um, there was one other band too. I can't, I, I apologize for not remembering that one, but I do remember HB Surround Sound. Shout out to those boys. Love those dudes. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a show that we were going to do anyway. And then, uh, they, the idea came up to, uh, do the live video. Um, I say live on quotes cause obviously the audio isn't live, but, um, the video is, um, it was fun because we knew it was, it, it, it was going to be done and our fans knew it was going to be done. Like we told them and we told everyone it's going to be filmed. You know, you put up the flyers everywhere. We're filming the, we're filming the show tonight. And we even played Unholy twice, which we'd never done. Uh, we played the video twice to make sure we got all the shots and everything. It was funny. I remember Matt like kind of laughing about it to the crowd and like saying like, all right, we got to play it again, guys. <laughs> like, here we go. <laughs> and it just seems funny because it's like, this is almost like, is this going to make it a stale moment? But it didn't, you know, it, surprisingly, the second time we played it was just as energetic. Like the fans loved it because they were, they were a part of our culture. You know, they were, they were our culture. I don't even want to say a part of our culture. They were our culture at the time. Like they, they personified, um, what that song was and what we, what was happening for our career. They were the engine driving it in a lot of respects. And I think when they saw that, you know, this band that they had supported for a couple of years and were excited to see, take it to the next level they were in full support of whatever it was that we were going to do to, to take it there, you know, and, uh, they wanted to help and I couldn't thank them more than anything. You know, it, I mean, I hope some of them are listening to this, like, cause it's been, again, it's 20 years and these guys were my age. I mean, it's now it's, it's funny. Cause now, now they're my, that now they're 18, you know, when I'm in the crowd, I'm like, Oh, these kids. Then I was like, these are my peers. You know, they, these are 18 year old, um, guys and girls or maybe even 16, whatever is the youngest. And they're, they're so supportive and down. And I really hope that they're still fans to this day because, again, you never know. Uh, they, uh, so I hope some of them are. They're, I'm sure they're not as diehard. I hope none of them uh, regret those tattoos that they got for the music video because um, they're, they're still awesome uh, tattoos in my, my opinion. Hopefully no one got a bunch of cover-ups or lasered them off or anything, you know. When I look back at this song, this era, what was happening for the band in Southern California – Man, it, it, it doesn't happen without them, like I said. And I know that sounds cliche, that doesn't happen without them. I don't mean it like that. I mean, it was kind of like crowdfunding, before crowdfunding. You know what I mean? Like they were, they had a lot of pride in the fact that they chose this band to to be the next, you know, whatever that they wanted. You know, like I, I, I don't want to say the next so-and-so or anything like that. I just want to say the next favorite that they had. That was going to be their next favorite. They chose to do that. That that we can't make them make that decision. We can write the music we want all to the cows come home. That was them. So I just want to thank all of them, and hopefully they're still with us. We gave them a special treat on the day that we filmed the video by showing up to the Henry Fonda Theater in our van with our trailer while the line stretched across, you know, the Boulevard in Hollywood, and we showed up, and you know the fans were cheering as our van pulls up to the venue, and right as we get directly in front of the Henry Fonda theater, our trailer hitch unlatched itself and started rolling backwards down the highway. 
<laughs> and all and all of a sudden you see five guys clad in black, you know, looking like uh, fucked up Joy Division or something, file out of this white van and start chasing the <laughs> chasing the trailer down the street to grab it to hook it back to our van for our glorious entrance on the uh, sold out Unholy Confessions video shoot show. And that is it for another episode of Tracks, the official Avenged Sevenfold podcast. I have been Bees. It's been an honor to be here with you. Make sure you subscribe to the show. Check out our previous shows because we have been telling you the definitive story of some of the biggest and best and weirdest and out there songs in the Avenged Sevenfold back catalog. If you fancy it, please do leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps the band. It helps the show. And ultimately, we are enjoying bringing this to you make sure you subscribe because next month we're going to be bringing you another definitive look at a song from the Avenged Sevenfold back catalogue you won't want to miss that one see you next month